Broadcasting from the Socialist Republic of New York. New York. There's plenty of money in this country. It's just in the wrong hands. The Moss Show. Politics, current events, and just a bit of Judaism. Two guys that are always right. Except when their wives tell them they're wrong. You're listening to The Moss Show. Good evening, everybody. This is The Mas Show with Nachman Mastavsky and Chesky Moskowitz. How you doing, Chesky? I'm, thank God, great. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's been a few weeks. We took a little bit of a summer break, and we have been very busy pushing an agenda both in Israel and here in America, the agenda of Israel's sovereignty over Judea and Samaria, which we will talk about in the future, in the next few weeks. And today, we are actually on our way back now from D.C., where Chesky was able to be on a panel for the Center of Sec- for Security Policy, where Fred Flights, for those of you that have heard our previous shows, know that Fred Flights runs an amazing organization called the Center for Security Policy, and they asked for Chesky to be on a panel on anti-Semitism today. So Chesky, tell us a little bit about how it was and who your fellow panelists were. Well, first of all, thank you, Nachman. Um, one of the things that uh, is a little crazy is that we actually, this is not our first time in D.C. In the last um, six days or so, in fact, we were here Wednesday and Thursday with a Chofei uh, mission, an advocacy mission, for ad- which was focused on advocating for sovereignty in the land of Israel. And we continued that today after I attended, uh, together with the help of Nachman, the we were, we were attending the, the panel. The panel, um, which took place at the CSP headquarters, Center for Security Policy headquarters, um, was uh, an amazing panel which discussed anti-Semitism, defending Israel and the Trump administration, um, basically discussing how anti-Semitism is an issue of national security as well as how defending Israel is an issue of national security, which is the focus of the center. Right, because as you mentioned, you know, you mentioned that in the event, and you'll hear it soon, that you know, basically how, how Jews are treated in a society is the canary in the coal mine for how that society will um, continue. And usually in a, commun- in, in a civilization where the Jews are treated poorly, that civilization usually not far after falls apart. A hundred percent, and that's how it like basically all tied together into the actions of the Trump administration, which obviously has been a tremendous friend of the state of Israel and has been doing so much work on this issue that such a big friend of, more importantly, truthfully, of the Jewish people here. So it's obviously something that's really important, and we had an amazing panel, so the participants in the panel were more inclined. Of course, more inclined, everybody knows from the ZOA, he's, you know... There's, there's, there's no one better than Mort. Legendary. He's legendary. So he's the president, as Nachman said, of the ZOA. Um, and then we had James... Um, how do you pronounce it? It's Carafano or something? Yes. Carafano. 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 Who's from... The vice president of Heritage is Catherine Shelby um, Kulo Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. And for those who don't know, the Heritage Foundation is a, is a think tank organization, very close, uh, uh, 
very high up in the conservative movement. Um, most of the press from from the reports out there that all Supreme Court and federal court judges that the president has been appointing and will appoint are basically approved by both the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation. So just people have to understand how important the Heritage Foundation is. It's one of the most important conservative think tanks in the country. And Very much so. Very much so. And, and then, uh, so obviously it was truly humbling to be on a panel with such a such a persona of such magnitude they just the people were so knowledgeable it was pretty amazing uh, to be on a to be on a panel with Mort Klein and um, Carafano or Sarafano however you pronounce it was truly amazing and then the third panelist together with us was Matthew Brodsky who's a Middle East expert he's geopolitical analyst and senior fellow at the Gold Institute for International Strategy um, also, very, all really educated people. I don't even know how I got on this panel. It was like, oh, because Chesky, because you, you you know a lot about the area. It's not you know, and not only that, but they wanted to have the the perspective of uh, younger 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 like younger young people, blood. and and also to be honest, uh, an Orthodox Jew. They also would like to you yeah, know they had. Sure. They, they, you know, it was they had it was all over the map there, and uh, and Fred Flights did a very good job uh, running, moderating, moderating it, moderating and running, running the conversation. It was, it was really, really good, amazing, and we love having it. We love Fred, and he loves our show, and he wants to come on again. Clearly, he shouted out like three times about our show. Yeah, you'll hear you'll hear it in there where he talks about it, so, assuming that he didn't edit it. So yeah, that was awesome, and. Um, I think it was very educational for myself and for Nachman. Yeah, it was. It was very educational. We got to see the perspective of truly knowledgeable people in this in this field, and uh, you know, we hope that you do enjoy the recording. It uh, is was, was given with permission by by Mr. Flights at the Center for Security Policy that we can play it, and he and uh, we greatly appreciate that, and we hope that you enjoy. Good morning. My name is Fred Flights. I'm President and CEO of the Center for Security Policy. Welcome to an important center panel on anti-Semitism defending Israel and the Trump administration. We have some important matters to discuss today that address religious liberty as well as U.S. and international security. There's been a surge in anti-Semitism in this country around the world, as I think you know, over the last couple of years. Some of this has been from, from the far right, and we saw this in, in the heinous attacks on a synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018 and the Poe synagogue last April. We know that far right extremists are responsible for this, that they're being radicalized over the internet. This is reprehensible and affront to modern society, and I'm very pleased that the Trump administration has taken this very seriously. The center does too. But we're going to talk about something else today. And that is surging anti-Semitism and hatred of Israel on the left that is being done in partnership with Islamists. It's my view that as serious as anti-Semitism from the far right is, this is even more serious because it is being brought into the mainstream. It's being normalized by the media, by academics, by government officials, and incredibly, it it has even entered the U.S. Congress. Now, our friends on the left deny this. They just claim they're engaging in legitimate criticism of the Israeli government or Israeli officials. Yet, when Israel takes steps to defend itself, they pounce immediately. 
and they have nothing to say, these folks on the left, when Israel takes steps to defend its security. We also know there's something called the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, which supposedly is in response to Israel's mistreatment of the Palestinian people. But we know this is an effort to destroy Israel, to undermine its right to exist, and is being pushed by the left and by Islamists. So we're holding this panel today because this hatred of the Jewish people and Israel on the left is becoming mainstream and acceptable. But, but let's, let's be clear, this is not true of most Democratic members of Congress, including Nancy Pelosi, who gave a fabulous speech to an APAC conference earlier this year where she said anti-Semitism is anti-American and Israel's security is America's security. Sadly, the Democratic Party is moving away from Pelosi and most Democrats. And we knew this because you may remember Congresswoman Ilhan Omar said some reprehensible anti-Semitic things just a few months ago. But Pelosi was unable to pass a resolution condemning Omar or her remarks. She did get a resolution passed, but it had to be filled with a long list of other types of bigotries to condemn, including Islamophobia. So Congresswoman Omar insults the Jewish people, and the House passes a resolution condemning Islamophobia. Think about that. Regrettably, the most energetic members of the left, the future of the Democratic Party, are socialists who are not just radical socialists. They're anti-Semitic and they're anti-Israel. They haven't taken over the Democratic Party yet, but they are on track to do so. Fortunately, we have in place right now an American president who is the most pro-Israel in history. He did what other presidents would not do. He moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, but he did even more than that. He really bucked the foreign policy establishment when he recognized the Golan Heights as Israeli territory. This is territory Israel needs more now than ever to defend its security because of the breakdown of what has happened in Syria and the fact that Iran could use Syrian territory to threaten the security of Israel. <laughs> We know the strong support President Trump has expressed for the Jewish people. We know that his daughter Ivanka not only is a convert to Judaism, but is bringing up her children in the Jewish faith. But that has not stopped the left from attacking the president with ridiculous charges of anti-Semitism. Well, we're going to try to set the record straight on that today. So let's be clear that this growing anti-Semitism on the left and hatred of Israel are threats not just to religious freedom and the Jewish people. This is a threat to one of America's closest and most important allies, which is a crucial partner for peace in the Middle East. The left's effort to weaken this ally in conjunction with radical Islamists and America's relationship with Israel could have dire consequences for American and international security. While I have an all-star panel here to discuss these crucial issues, I'm going to briefly mention them now, and I'll give a more detailed introduction before they speak. Uh, our first panelist is Morton Klein. He is national president of Zionist Organization of America. Rabbi Ezekiel Moskowitz, founder and CEO of MBA, MBLA International. James Carafano, vice president of, of the Heritage Foundation. And Matthew Brodsky, a geopolitical analyst and senior fellow at the Gold Institute for International Strategy. So our first speaker will be Morton Klein. He's national president of the Zionist Organization of America, the oldest pro-Israel group in the United States, founded in 1897. Mr. Klein is widely regarded as one of the leading Jewish activists in the U.S. He is a child of Holocaust survivors born in a displaced persons camp in Gunsburg, Germany. 
Mord is a national treasure who has been one of America's leading voices fighting against anti-Semitism and anti-Israel bias. Among his many accolades, the National Jewish Weekly, The Forward, named him as one of the top five Jewish leaders in U.S. society today. The Philadelphia Exponent named him as one of the top dozen Jewish activists of the century. Now, Mort's appearance today could not be more timely since he gave powerful remarks on Sunday at a huge rally in New York City against anti-Semitism when he spoke out against the surge of Islamic anti-Semitism in America and demanded not just that U.S. imams preaching this annihilistic Jew hatred be called out, but folks on the left who are facilitating this hatred, that they, they be called out also. Uh, so, Mort, with that, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Fred. It's, a, it's an honor for me to be here with uh, such an important group as the Center for Security Policy that I've been working with for 25 years, uh, <laughs> when you were maybe still in high school. <laughs> anyway. Uh, great school. <laughs> great school. Kindergarten. <laughs> well, first of all, I want to put this a little bit in context. It is not a coincidence that the two leading anti-Semites in Congress are both Muslims. It pains me to say this. It's not a coincidence. ADL polls show that 34% of American Muslims are anti-Semitic. <laughs> the Koran, the standard Koran preaches that Jews are under the curse of Allah, that Allah has transformed disobedient Jews into apes and pigs and such. At the West Point of uh, Islam, in Cairo, Al-Azhar University, <clears throat> they preach hatred against Jews. They even give sermons preaching the hadith uh, uh, lines about seeking out the Jew, whether he's be behind a tree or a rock, and kill him. Imams have been videotaped all over America, all over America, promoting this type of hatred, asking that every Jew be annihilated one by one. It's shocking that I'm saying this, but this is the painful truth. And we have demanded these imams be fired, that none of them uh, uh, ha has been fired. We have Linda Sarsour, a leading anti-Semitic Muslim activist who praises rock throwing against Jews, praises the terror war against Jews, demands that Jews stop being humanized. And despite this, we have Bernie Sanders hiring her as a surrogate, a Jewish man hiring this anti-Semite uh, as a surrogate. And we have Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, publicly and uh, continuously paying Arabs to murder Jews. It's a law in the Palestinian Authority. So this is uh, the context in which we have these two anti-Semitic Muslim congresswomen. Uh, Ilan Omar, a Democrat from Minnesota, <laughs> who has publicly stated in tweets and in speeches that the Jewish state is evil, that the Jewish state has hypnotized the world to support it. She supports boycotting Israel. She said that Jewish money is the reason members of Congress support Israel. She's compared boycotting Israel to boycotting uh, the Nazi Germany in the 30s. It's just shocking. <laughs> and she calls supporting Israel maybe the most important ally America has, uh, allegiance to a foreign country. Of course, she accuses Israel of apartheid, even though 13 uh, Israeli Arabs were just elected to the Knesset in an election. Twelve sit there now. I don't think there were too many blacks in the South African uh, parliament during their apartheid years. <laughs> and she is joined by Rashida Tlaib, a Democrat from Michigan, <laughs> who was called to stop all aid to the Jewish state, who calls Israel racist and also apartheid. 
says that Israel discriminates against darker-skinned people. My God, they go to Ethiopia, Israel, to take black people from Ethiopia into Israel to give them a good life and a decent uh, uh, life. And yet she makes this outrageous statement. She supports BDS as well. She has put uh, on her map in the office over the state of Israel uh, a, a, a little piece of tape saying Palestine, erasing Israel from her own office uh, map. <laughs> when she won her first election, she wrapped herself in the Palestinian Authority flag. Um, talk about being a loyal American. Uh, when she talked about the Holocaust, she said, this gives me a common feeling. And then she makes the outrageous Orwellian lie that the Palestinian Arabs lost their lives and, uh, and lost land providing a safe haven for the Jews after the Holocaust, when in fact six Arab countries invaded Israel in an attempt to murder every Jew and destroy the Jewish state. This monstrous lie. <laughs> uh, she takes pictures with Hezbollah supporters, with Hamas supporters, uh, uh, and only uh, this week she praised Farah Bilou, uh, a Muslim who was thrown out of the women's march uh, uh, board for her anti-Semitism, and she this week praised that woman. <laughs> she is called uh, Israel, stated Israel is not an ally, that it's not a democracy. These monstrous Orwellian lies, and the, and the painful aspect of this is not only does her party not condemn these people by name, the resolution that was passed never mentioned Omar Atlay by name. They don't condemn them by name. In fact, they've actually defended them, defended them, saying these are words they don't understand. It's just uh, shocking. <laughs> So, uh, uh, and these words have been translated into violence in Europe, these types of anti-Semitic Islamic uh, uh, sermons, and I worry, God forbid, this should happen in America. Uh, I will end by simply quoting uh, Paul Johnson, uh, a great historian, a non-Jewish historian, in his book, A History of the Jews, where he said one of the principal lessons of Jewish history has been that repeated verbal slanders are sooner or later followed by violent physical deeds. Time and again over the centuries, anti-Semitic writings and statements have created their own fearful momentum, which climaxed in an effusion of Jewish blood. God forbid this should happen. We are urging Muslim leaders, good imams, democratic leaders, Republican leaders, Sanders and Warren and other democratic candidates, who, by the way, three or four of them have publicly defended Omar and Tlaib, of the Democratic presidential candidates, were demanding and urging them to condemn the vicious hatred and bigotry uh, against Jews that these two Muslim uh, members uh, uh, of the Congress uh, continue to uh, spew forth. Thank you. Thanks, Mort. Um, I want to, I had forgotten to thank our viewers on Facebook and YouTube. I might add you can submit us questions over Facebook and YouTube after our panel speaks. Uh, we'd be happy to answer them. Our next uh, panelist will be Rabbi Yexel Moskowitz, who is the founder and CEO of MBLA International. He is from Rabbi Moskowitz Start the Moss Show, a podcast providing political commentary for the Jewish community, and I was pleased to be on one of your first shows. It was a, I strongly recommend that you listen to it, and it is also featured on Twitter. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz is a dynamic, dynamic speaker who has been an important voice speaking out on threats to the U.S.'s relationship and anti-Semitism in his role as the special assistant to Cherna Moskowitz, who heads the Irving I. Moskowitz Foundation. Uh, Rabbi? First of all, Fred, thank you so much for having me on this panel. This is uh, my second uh, panel with the center. It's really an honor. And it's actually kind of 
interesting because that I'm sitting here on a panel with Moore Klein, who has a long, rich history with my family, and it's like kind of coming full circle, being that my grandfather worked with Moore many years ago, and here I am sitting on the same panel with Moore. Um, I wanted to address a, 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 a little bit of a different angle than Mort was. Mort was speaking a lot about how there is a lot of anti-Semitism coming from the liberal progressive movement, specifically the um, Islamists within that movement. I would like to address the Jewish angle in that whole equation. So when we talk about the history of the Jewish people in the United States, um, it's, it's pretty rich, a pretty rich and um, fruitful one. The Jewish people have definitely been net positive contributors to American society, um, especially for the fact that the Judeo-Christian values upon many of the tenets of the Constitution are based, are actually grounded in the Jewish faith. Um, but we saw over the years in the evolution of the quote-unquote American Jew that the Jewish, Jewish community in America has evolved into three types of Jews. The first, who for the most part are ignored, are Jews who embrace, embrace their values and their heritage, and they are proud of being American and proud of keeping the torch, so to speak, of their Jewish faith and heritage and propagating those values. The second are Jews who are indifferent to the values upon which their culture stands. Rather, their Jewishness their, boils really down to Jewish cultural symbols um, based on what they believe is an antiquated heritage, heritage long lost, soon to be forgotten. The third is what will be mostly discussed right now, are Jews who, in the pursuit of happiness and the American dream, so to speak, have embraced liberal progressivism as Judaism. This trend really started in the 60s and in the 70s when the Jewish leadership, mainly coming up from the egalitarian segments of American Jewry, replaced Jewish culture with liberal progressive social justice, now known as the Tikkun Olam ideology. So there are several examples um, in the last couple of years that exemplify this behavior. I mean, it, there's a very long, rich history of this, but just to give a couple bullet points of a couple of examples. Um, the Never Again campaign to stop ICE and Trump's, Trump's concentration camps continues to mostly be led by Jewish activists. In fact, over 250 hashtag Jews against ICE were arrested at a protest back in August alone. Sadly, the fact that these social justice warriors are so against appropriation of any type are so easily able to appropriate the concept of never again to this issue is lost on them and is a symptom of the problem. Dozens of synagogues across the country, also mainly um, affiliated with the egalitarian community, um, joined the network of houses to offer undocumented immigrants protection during the expected U.S.-wide raids. A pseudo group of rabbis known as Trua, Rabbis for Social Justice, ran, um, which Mort here is battling vigorously against on social media, um, run, run a network of synagogues that provide basically sanctuary for undocumented families. One of those was, sadly, none other than the Tree of Life Synagogue, which ran, which ran literally fundraisers for Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, otherwise known as Hyas. This liberal progressive refugee organization, which has really forgotten its Jewish roots, has launched an emergency response program to ensure asylum seekers along the border get legal pro bono representation. Hayes also organizes 
aid missions to southern to the southern border, with solidarity missions across the border. One such event included over 40 rabbis and Jewish leaders, among them Jill Jacobs, who visited migrant centers in Tijuana. Um, the list goes on and on. This is all happening while there were over 350 organizations who wrote a letter to Jeff Sessions opposing what they called the cruel policy of family separation at the border. Obviously, this doesn't really help the narrative or change the narrative of the white supremacists who often refer to the Hart-Celler Act of 1965, which was actually introduced to Congress by Emanuel Seller, a Jew, and was written in part by a deputy AG, Nobert Shelley, as proof, so to speak, that there is in fact some greater Jewish conspiracy to overthrow the white population in this country. Oftentimes, the same liberal progressives who are involved in this social justice nonsense are oftentimes participating in some of the most vile and grotesque anti-Israel activism, taking groups such as Trua, rabbis who claim that Israel is an occupier of Palestinian land, another rising star, the group known as If Not Now, and Hit Ori, Uri Litzedek, Torah Trump's Hate, then the Ark, and many more, actively seek to normalize Israel hatred and give credence to the anti-Semitism that is spewing forth from the liberal progressive camp. So in summary, the behavior of the liberal progressive Jewish community promotes, in my opinion, anti-Semitism, knowingly or not, in two ways. The first, they already are festering the already pre-existing anti-Semitism within the neo-Nazi white supremacist camp. These, group, these, these groups view those who promote liberal progressivism and socialism as the enemy just as much as they did in the 1920s. And they are seeing, once again, the conspirators, so to speak, in the grand social justice scheme as being none other than the Jews. Obviously, aside from this being patently false, such rhetoric obviously turns Jews into targets for white supremacist deadly frustration. And we've seen, unfortunately, how this plays out across the country. The second, which, although has not been yet as deadly as the first, is a lot more frequent, which is the anti-Israel pro-BDS lobby. This, this community sees and even promotes a moral equivalency between Jewish self-defense and Palestinian terrorism. They pr promote within their mosques across the United States, as Mort stated, obviously protected by free speech, mind you, some of the most classic anti-Semitic tropes and even resurrecting the classic pre-World War I blood, blood libels and much more. The thing is that instead of being repudiated by the Jewish community, these anti-Semitic groups, in fact, just see how Jews are embracing their anti-Israel rhetoric or even defending their actions under the guise of Islamophobia, making it challenging for others, including various government agencies and, and NGOs, to tackle this problem. Inadvertently, this criticism, coupled with inaction, provides these groups with a silent approval, so to speak, to not only to continue to express their anti-Semitic sentiment, but express full-blown-on Jewish hatred. It's well known 
obviously, that the squad works with these aforementioned groups, oftentimes ho hosting these groups in their offices on the hill, so to speak, showing off their Jewish friends, saying, look, there's an expression in Judaism that they are showing themselves to say, look, we're kosher because we have the Jews with us. This is much akin to the, so to speak, Jews who during the Middle Ages would convert to Christianity and would become the most anti-Semitic people within the town or the community. And there's a historic precedent for that and we're seeing very much the same kind of the idea that's going on. To them, to the whole liberal, the whole wide spectrum of the liberal progressive community, and most importantly within the Islamic faction of that, the, so to speak, Judeo values that were bestowed upon Western culture, the Jerusalem and modern thought, is the enemy. So in conclusion, this, this embrace of anti-Israel and anti-capitalist sentiment has in every sense of the world translated into anti-Jewish sentiment within the liberal progressive community. When you dehumanize the brave soldiers of the IDF or call Jewish landlords, as New York City Mayor de Blasio does, evil, rest be assured that Jews will be targeted. The ongoing reality in New York City, which Mort was just in New York protesting, does not exist in a vacuum. It is an ongoing issue that the left is clearly not willing to address, period. Obviously, this is mainly because it's coming from within their caucus with a kosher certification of the liberal progressive community. So my message to the liberal progressive Jewish community is such, instead of focusing on the border, perhaps they should be protesting the Jews that are being targeted in Brooklyn on a daily basis. But they probably won't, because if they agree, they most likely agree with those perpetrating their ha the hate. After all, the Orthodox Jews, who are typically perceived as right-leaning, are indeed, at least according to them, causing climate change and our evil landlords. With that, I believe that this clearly indicates how this is a issue of grave concern to the entire American community. And as Fred has mentioned to us many times, is an issue of national security and should be and should be taken very seriously. Rabbi, thank you. Our next speaker will be James Carafano. He is vice president of the Heritage Foundations Catherine and Shelby Cullen Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. He also is the Heritage E.F. Richardson Fellow. Jim is one of America's leading national security experts and a starian, a teacher, as well as a prolific writer and researcher. Uh, Jim also is a 25-year Army veteran with a master and doctor's degree from Georgetown. In addition, Jim is an adjunct professor at Georgetown and serves as a visiting professor at National Defense University. Jim, thanks. Uh, well, first of all, thanks to the, the Center for Security Policy for uh, putting this event together and in, inviting me. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Center um, and their work. They've been incredibly courageous, I think, for many years, um, doing exactly what, what, what uh, I think the critics would not want them to do, which is to be silent, right? To be demonized and then to just be quiet and go away. And instead, I think they've been really quite courageous, not just in, in standing up in a principled way, but also letting bringing the facts to the table and, and letting honest facts speak for themselves. So thank, and glad you're here, Fred. Thanks for your leadership. And, and thanks for the, the voice at the, the 
Center provides. I think maybe the most helpful thing I could do is to maybe just take a step back and talk about why this matters to Americans. And I, I think there's two points worth making. Um, the first is the, the fundamental issue of human rights and the fact that uh, America's not the world's policeman, we're, we're not the world's babysitter, and we're not here to lecture the world. But having said that, as an instrument of foreign policy, America cares about human rights because human rights fundamentally better the human community of which we are part of. And uh, this administration in particular gets criticism for not actually embracing that role, which is completely unfounded. Because, in fact, this administration not only embraces that role, it embraces it the right way. And we had an illustration of that this week with the president at uh, the United Nations General Assembly, uh, not just speaking with great authority and courage on the floor of the UN to all the assembled masses of world leaders, but hosting uh, a a sidebar in which the United States talked about the fundamental importance of religious liberty uh, and religious freedom and combating religious persecution. Because while a lot of people on both sides of the aisle, on the right and left, talk about human rights, um, that conversation has become tremendously diluted in the world in which we live today, where, where human rights essentially becomes this, the kind of the thing that we like right now. It's been abused on the right and the left. And particularly on the left, it's not only been abused to, to to, to foster their pet projects as fundamental human rights, but actually uses an instrument of, of lawfare and aggression against states like Israel and others. It's, it's, so it's actually, what the president is doing is saying, look, we should all focus on the fundamental things that provide human freedom, and there is none more essential, there's none more quintessential to the human experience than the right of people to worship their God, and that those who persecute the right of people to worship their God are the true evildoers in the world. So I think from that perspective, this is important an important issue for America, to stand up as a powerful and clear and consistent voice against anti-Semitism. Um, but, but the United States is a country, like every country, which its foreign policy is driven by both its interests and its values. And we have deep interests um, in the state of Israel. And and is this. The United States, quite honestly, is a global power with global interests and responsibilities. Again, we're not, that's just who we are. Uh, we have companies and people and citizens and friends and allies on every corner of the planet. And the United States has a responsibility to protect those interests and those rights. And so we have to act as a global power. And what really connects us to the, to the globe? What knits the entire world together? Um, and, there's, and there's really three regions that are really important, fundamentally important to the United States in order for us to get to the places we need to be to protect our interests. And they are Western Europe, the Middle East, uh, and the Indo-Pacific. And oftentimes these days we hear discussions about, well, we really need to be focusing on China, and, and, and we forget the centrality of the Middle East. It's called the Middle East for a reason. It actually is in the middle of everything. It is the great transmit point of the world commerce, finance, oil, people, they all flow in and out of this region. If this region is not at peace, America is never safe. And what is the great threat to this region? Uh, today, it's fundamentally the uh, Iran and Iran's deep destabilizing uh, influence. Uh, it's been other things in the past. It will be other things in the future. Um, the United States can never walk away from the Middle East and be safe in our own homes. Uh, 
It doesn't have to be the land of milk and honey that they talk about in the Bible, but it's important for the United States that this part of the world is stable and peaceful. And so we, in a sense, have to be present. We don't have to be present with many divisions and, and multiple aircraft carriers all the time, but we have to be able to be in the region and to get to the region and know what's going on in the region and operate in that region. And so at the base of that policy always is you know, America's anchor. Um, we have these in other places as well. In Europe, our anchor is really Great Britain. Great Britain anchors America to the transatlantic community and to Europe. So we are always present as a transatlantic power. In uh, the Indo-Pacific, it's really Japan and South Korea. They're our anchors, our, our long-standing traditional allies that we can count on. They anchor us into that region and always make America Indo-Pacific power. And in the Middle East, it is the tiny country of Israel. Israel is our most long-standing most dependable, most capable, most reliable ally. And in a sense, it is America's anchoring to that region. And as long as that alliance is strong, America is a, is a force and a power that's present in the region. And so the future of Israel is not just a matter of America championing the rights of religious liberty and religious freedom and combating anti-Semitism. It is also a, a key strategic interest of the United States. And let's be honest, the, the anti-Semitic campaign is at its root a project to destroy Israel. It is the doppelganger, the other side of the physical destruction of, of Israel as a nation. If we can't mass armies and planes and bombs and ships and drive the Israelis into the sea, we can destroy their legitimacy, their credibility with the international community and scare people away from partnering, uh, shouldering, and working with the Israelis. And that's what this campaign fundamentally is really all about and why it has to be a core American policy to be a strong partner of Israel and to be really the world's leader in leading in the campaign combating against anti-Semitism. Jim, thank you. Our final speaker will be Matthew Brodsky, a geopolitical analyst and senior fellow at the Gold Institute for International Strategy. He previously was director of policy for the Jewish Policy Center. Matthew holds an, an MA in Middle East history from Tel Aviv University. He's a specialist in Middle East affairs and Arab politics. I'm sure you've frequently seen him on Fox News and, and other channels. Uh, he's a prolific writer, and his work has recently uh, uh, frequently appears in National Review, the Jerusalem Post, the National Interest, the Federalist, and the Hill. And he frequently appears on the center's uh, radio show, Secure Freedom Radio. Matthew. Thank you, Fred, for hosting. And Thank you to the Center for Security Policy. Very important uh, issues and an excellent panel here to address it. So I'm going to be speaking about BDS. Uh, what is BDS? So in its simplest definition, of course, it's boycott, divest, and sanctions against Israel. Understanding its origins is uh, fairly important. Many of its supporters claim that the movement began in July 2005 as a call by Palestinian civil society organizations for a boycott, divest, and sanction movement against Israel and for academic and cultural boycotts. The BDS architects also dated back to 2005 as a Palestinian-led movement for freedom, justice, and equality that intends to effectively challenge the international support for Israel for Israeli apartheid and settler colonialism. Now, in this telling of the story, it was founded a year after the establishment of the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel in Ramallah. A great effort 
is taken to portray the movement as an indigenous Palestinian cause that's all about liberal philosophies, freedom, justice, equality, yada, yada, concepts uh, that really resonate in an uh, increasingly progressive West. In reality, the roots of the campaign predates the modern-day establishment of Israel as a state in 1948. By the end of 1945, three years before Israel's statehood and a few months after the last death camps in Europe was liberated, the newly formed Arab League Council formally declared a boycott against Jewish products and manufactured goods and called for all Arab institutions, organizations, merchants, commissioned agents, and individuals to refuse to deal in or distribute or consume Zionist products or manufactured goods. And you'll notice that Jewish and Zionist are used interchangeably there. The boycott actually remained in place for the duration of the 20th century, uh, primarily conducted by Arab states until 2001, when a form of non-governmental organizations was convened that year uh, called the UN World Conference Against Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, Xenophobia and Related Intolerance. Try that as an acronym. Uh, in Durban, South Africa. This was a uh, conference drenched in anti-Semitism, copies of the anti-Semitic work, protocols of the elders of Zion. They were sold on the grounds. Uh, the uh, forum's final declaration described Israel as a racist apartheid state that was guilty of racist crimes, including war crimes, acts of genocide, and ethnic cleansing. So this, of course, predates what is what the people who are now currently spokesmen in the Palestinian areas are, are wanting to portray. Um, it promotes a policy of complete and total isolation of Israel as an apartheid state. This is the Durban strategy uh, from 2001. The imposition of mandatory and comprehensive sanctions and embargoes, the full cessation of all links between all states and Israel. This conference is where the BDS movement, as we see practice today, was born. It seeks to link Israeli policies with the racial segregation practice of South Africa, as you can see there, um, the hope was to convince the international community to adopt the same type of boycott and sanctions campaign that contributed to the downfall of that system. Of course, given modern sensitivities, it wasn't considered to be against a Jewish people, but against Zionists and Israeli settlers. So contrary to the common BDS mythology, the first Palestinian BDS conference wasn't actually held until 2007 in Ramallah, giving birth to the BDS National Committee comprised of a number of anti-Israel groups to serve, the Palestinian, to serve as the Palestinian coordinating body for the global BDS campaign. So despite the disguise as a Palestinian human rights movement, the BDS movement was founded by left-wing socialists and Marxists in 2001, explicitly to undermine Israel's sovereignty skillfully exploiting the languages of peace, justice, and human rights to appeal to Western audiences. So who comprises of the BDS movement? Because it's not just a person or a simple idea. It's made up of a dozen uh, NGOs and radical activists around the world. It includes rejectionist Palestinian groups in cooperation with radical left-wing groups in the West. BDS leaders and organizations are also linked to the Palestinian Authority and Palestinian student organizations, well-funded Muslim organizations, most of whom have ties to the Muslim Brotherhood, such as the Council on American-Islamic Relations and others, other radical groups, terror-supporting organizations, in some cases, even terror groups themselves, such as Hamas. 
Of course, they're backed up with groups in the U.S., as you've heard uh, already today. Anti-Israel Jewish groups, uh, or I should say, anti-Israel yeah, Jewish groups, uh, like J Street individuals and left-wing students and academics, uh, the ACLU, other liberal groups have joined with BDS advocates. Supporters obviously include politically uh, here in the U.S., members of the squad, Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, uh, civil rights icon, uh, Representative John Lewis of Georgia has actually joined in recently, Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, Black Lives Matter. Frankly, the list is far too long to, to just to list here, uh, but a lot of it gets back to the Western ideals, the... Uh, a play on on progressive ideology. That's how uh, it is basically disguised and masked here. A lot of these also have ties to the terrorist organizations. More than 30 Hamas and PFLP operatives hold senior position within BDS advocacy organizations. Known terrorists are invited to the uh, national conventions of BDS affiliates. Um, for more on, on all of this, you can read a report called Terrorists in Suits that Israel has put out, uh, provides detailed evidence and more than 100 links between BDS and Hamas and PFLP uh, people, both of whom are, of course, U.S.-designated terrorist groups. So in Western circles, BDS is commonly understood uh, is commonly misunderstood. It is genuinely, uh, generally viewed as a progressive, non-violent campaign led by Palestinian grassroots organizations, propelled by Western human rights groups who call for boycotting Israeli goods produced in the occupied or disputed Golan Heights. Um, but the BDS movement seeks to eliminate Israel even before addressing the Palestinian issue. The BDS movement isn't about registering dissatisfaction with Israeli policies. It's about applying a double standard to Israel. Uh, BDS is designed to demonize and delegitimize the Palestinian state and actually replace it with a Palestinian state. It does not simply object, uh, object to Israel's administration of land it captured after Arab armies invaded the state in 1967. Um, it opposes Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state in its pre-1967 borders. That's according to the movement's own official documents. The BDS lobby actually calls for a series of steps that would dismantle the Jewish state. So it's important to understand that the occupation that they refer to is not the 1967 occupation. Uh, it's the uh, existence of Israel, the occupation of any land, uh, Arab land, basically from the sea to the river, the river to the sea. Um, when they refer to the United Nations General Assembly Resolution 194, which uh, recognizes Palestinian refugees, quote, right of return to their homes, there is no actual uh, right that exists in international law, and its implementation and practice actually means the end of Israel as a democratic national state. Of course, they advocate the removal of the security barrier, which would make Israel the... Uh, destination for weekly suicide terrorist attacks as it previously was. They also call for a uh, phased uh, demand, actually. It's kind of based on the PLO platform for 1974, which is ending the occupation and colonization of all Arab lands and dismantling the wall, recognizing the fundamental rights of Arab-Palestinian citizens uh, to full equality, which they have, uh, respecting and protecting and promoting Palestinian refugees to return to their homes, through this resolution, and uh, basically 
This is the phased approach where you essentially take what you can get now and uh, you continue to strive for uh, the full enchilada, we should say, uh, later. Now, what makes this anti-Semitic uh, is if, uh, for Javad Zarif, always talks about how it's all about the B-team. Well, when it comes to the modern features of anti-Semitism, it's all about the Ds, three Ds specifically, delegitimization, demonization, and double standards. So the standard definitions of anti-Semitism include denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination by claiming the existence of the state of Israel is a racist endeavor, applying double standards by requiring of it, behavior that is not expected or demanded of any uh, other democratic nation. The International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, which is accepted by the EU and the State Department here, uh, states that delegitimization, demonization, and the use of double standards toward Israel are modern-day forms of anti-Semitism. So, in context, there are 57 Muslim states, 24 Christian states, that's by law, there are actually over 100 if you're going by population, six Buddhist states, uh, but only one Jewish state. There are presently about 124 countries that are involved with territorial disputes, the 1967 issue, uh, for Israel, that is, uh, many of which have uh, produced much greater human suffering than that that's involved between Israelis, Israelis and Palestinians. But the BDS movement or platform singles out Israel, and only Israel, and it's a campaign to end its existence, which is the world's Jewish states. So BDS is essentially turning anti-Semitism into a social movement. Uh, the fundamental truth is that, of course, we should say that not all of its supporters are anti-Semites. Uh, the movement itself is anti-Semitic, though, in its intent and in effect. Uh, it seeks to cut off the only Jewish state in the world from all international trade, diplomatic relations, cultural and academic programs, tourism, all other ties with every, with every nation on earth. If fully implemented, it would destroy the state. And we should also close by saying that uh, Israel has no problem with criticism. It's a very vibrant democratic state. In fact, they bash each other as well, if not better than we bash each other here in our political system. But what they reject is delegitimization, demonization, and the double standard. Uh, these are the features of modern anti-Semitism, and that's why the BDS movement is, to its core, an anti-Semitic platform. Thank you. Matthew, that was fabulous. Uh, I'm going to ask two quick questions, and then we'll open it up and allow the mm -hmm. panel to talk among themselves. Mm -hmm. My first question concerns BDS. I'd like you to start with it, Matthew. You know, I I've expressed real concern that anti-Semitism and hate of Israel is coming into Congress. But on the other hand, the House recently passed a resolution condemning the BDS movement, which as was opposed by certain members of Congress. Uh, does this give us hope that maybe that Democratic members of Congress understand this problem and maybe there's something we can do to to, to fight off anti-Semitism from coming into Congress? Well, if the question is, do the, does the Democrat... Uh, side understand this for the House. I mean, that verdict is still out. However, what we're seeing now, the trend lines, as I think has already been pointed out here, are certainly not encouraging. It seems to the squad has uh, hijacked the talking points, but not just the talking points. As you can see, how the legislation itself in the House was a watered-down version of what was already in the Senate, which the uh, I believe Nancy Pelosi uh, frankly 
I don't. I'm pretty sure she didn't have a problem with her. Many in the caucus didn't have a, of the many Democrats didn't have a problem with the harder definition that would target uh, a pushback against the BDS movement. So I, I think we're seeing a uh, essentially the lurching further to the left in the Democrat Party, uh, and it's being hijacked. By that, we'll see if how that is uh, essentially going to play out. It's it's kind of like I, I look back at uh, at what happened when uh, Trump was elected president. There was the internal divisions within the Republican Party that had to be sorted out. Well, Democrats at this point seem to be four to six years behind where Republicans are. Except for this is actually a sinister movement in which they are going to have to deal with it themselves because Republicans seem fairly unified on this matter. Democrats, uh, that still remains to be seen. Can I have a a more, even more pessimistic assessment? (laughs) Um, And that is, what this actually, I think, reflects is is, uh, a, a, a real transformation in American foreign policy, which is the American attitudes towards the state of Israel, which traditionally, for years of foreign policy in the Congress and the right and left, uh, support for Israel was relatively bipartisan. I mean, and although you, there were always detractors on, on both sides, but the, but in the mainstream, it was completely non-controversial in the U.S. Congress um, to support the bilateral relationship between U.S. and Israel. That's starting to change, where we're actually seeing the political parties adapt in their partisan political platforms different pers- different attitudes towards the state of Israel. And a major contributor to that really has been, I think, the transformation of the American Jewish communities, which in many ways was, was always a firebreak. It was a glue that really kind of held both sides together. And it goes back to the issue that you talked about, which is kind of the transformation of the American Jewish community, which has become increasingly more secular um, increasingly more liberal and an increasingly smaller force in the American electorate. And the result of that is getting kind of dragged into this BDS movement. It, it has um, dragged a more, it has kind of fallen behind a more progressive Democratic Party, which has now want, found itself going down the road of viewing Israel not as the, the, the ally that we respect on both sides, but as an issue to debate with the right over. And um, that is really problematic. If nowhere else, it's more, I think, problematic for Democrats because conversely, ironically, and nobody knows this issue better than Fred, there is a, a bit of a consensus in the United States about what is the great problem in the, in the region, and that is Iran. Left and right agree on that. They don't agree on the Iran deal, and again, nobody's a bigger expert on that than Fred, so they, they have disputes about how to handle Iran, but everybody in America, I mean, in the political, by and large, recognizes that Iran is the great threat to uh, American policy in the Middle East. It has to be dealt with. This creates a real problem for Democrats who then are abandoning the most important ally in the region that we need to work with to contain Iran. Yeah. I say, uh, the BDS movement is uh, predicated on gigantic propaganda Orwellian lies. We found on campuses that many of the kids uh, who are not bad kids believe in BDS because they believe the lies. They believe that there is an occupation. Occupation means someone has stolen someone else's sovereign land. 
Of course, there was never a country uh, called Palestine. Even the word Palestine is a Roman name. If there was an Arab country, Palestine, why did they use a Roman name? Uh, and there's no occupation. Israel's given away all of Gaza, 40% of Judea and Samaria. That's where 99% of the Palestinian Arabs live. They have their own parliaments, their own uh, schools, their own textbooks, their own police, their own businesses. They run their lives completely except security. And the only reason Israel has to share in security is because terror cells in the Palestinian uh, uh, areas continue to evolve to want to come into Israel to kill Jews. Secondly, settlements. Uh, they believe that Israel's built settlements on 80% of Judea and Samaria. When they find out the truth that the Jewish communities of Judea and Samaria comprise less than 2% of the West Bank of Judea and Samaria, they're in shock. And they're in shock that there's not been a single new Jewish community settlement built since Oslo began in 93. The only building that's occurred is within the boundaries of the existing communities there in 1993 when Oslo began. <laughs> and also statehood. The, kid, the people are shocked to find out that Israel has offered a state to the Palestinian Authority at least three times in the last 19 years, rejected every time without a counteroffer, and they've been offered a state seven times in the last 80 years, starting with the Peel Commission in 1937, and then the UN Resolution 181 and 48, and they rejected it every time because it meant accepting Israel as a Jewish state and saying there'll be no further claims. Proof that the issue is not land or statehood, it's Israel's uh, absolute destruction. And the final issue, they believe, is why isn't Israel uh, offering to give away parts of Jerusalem? Well, the truth is, and this is a truth that people do not like to talk about, if Jerusalem is so holy to Muslims, why on earth is it that in their holy book, the Koran, the word Jerusalem is never mentioned, not a single time. And why is it when they controlled Jerusalem, the most important parts of Jerusalem, between 48 and 67, did they allow it to become a slum? Uh, did they uh, make Amman their capital? Uh, there was virtually no water, running water, no electricity, no plumbing in, in Jerusalem when the Arabs controlled it. Not a single Arab leader except for Jordanian leaders ever visited Jerusalem when they controlled it because it's really not holy to them. And those are the things I think have to be promoted by those who care about the truth, those who care about Israel, uh, that the whole BDS movement is propagated on an outrageous, propagandistic, Orwellian lies. Rabbi, do you have thoughts on this? I, do, I, I think that um, the panelist from the Heritage said um, something that's very <laughs> important, that we're seeing how the Jewish community is transferring over and with their less electorate power. I think that there was just, I just saw a op-ed in the New York Times yesterday where, act, where actually it just kind of segues into what happened just now in the Israeli elections that everybody's kind of confused about what's going on over there. But one thing is, sh is certain is that one of the major issues that has been going on between the American Jewish community, specifically the liberal progressive segment of it, and Israel has there's been this sort of wedge between <laughs> both communities, and it's kind of been blamed on Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, for being a right-wing hawk. But the, the op-ed in the New York Times, which was written by a liberal progressive, is saying that the, he thinks that even with Benny Gantz, if he becomes the Prime Minister, this is going to act, he, he's saying it's a bad thing that Benny Gantz won because the now American Jewry is going to learn that they don't really like Israel at all. Right. And that they're going to find that Benny Gantz is not going to be that much different on a policy level than Benjamin Netanyahu. And that, to him, was a cause of concern because that means that finally American liberal Jews who don't really have any, don't have really much of a connection with Israel and have 
I guess you could say, truly assimilated into Ameri- into their liberal progressive American mm-hmm. culture, don't look at Israel as a priority anymore, which really boils down to something that my grandfather used to speak about, which is truly a, a total um, degeneration of their Jewish pride and of understanding of their Jewish history. And like the end of the day, they have to remember that the treatment of Jews is the canary in the coal mine for every civilization in history. And when Jews are just totally ignoring that, it's an alarming factor. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, President Trump has been maybe the most pro-Israel president ever and, and has been extremely supportive of the Jewish community. At the same time, he's been criticized for his close relationship uh, with uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. I wonder if the panel would like to comment on how the Trump administration has been doing and what more might it do to address this issue of anti-Semitism and supporting the U.S.-Israel uh, relationship. I'd, I'd be happy to start. Um, you know, I I think there's a profoundly, like the most professional word I can think of is scary uh, yeah. thing going on in the world. So we've, we've entered what's now called, called the era of great power competition. So uh, in theory, the focus of, of, of U.S. power protecting its interests in the world is really kind of dealing with the, the countries that have the, the authority and capacity to really challenge that. And that includes... China, Iran, Russia, because there's nuclear weapons, North Korea. Um, but one of the interesting products of that competition has, has been how the, the issue of freedom and human rights um, can be completely perverted or, or really whitewashed. Um, and, and oftentimes it is the liberal voices in the Western world which are actually participants and enablers of this process. So we had a great discussion here about anti-Semitism and, and about how the BDS movement has essentially weaponized Western human rights against a people, uh, in, in not protecting human values, but essentially been turned to the destruction of the religious liberty of, of the, the Jewish people. We've seen the same thing with the Uyghurs. Here you have... Um, over a tenth of the Uyghur population in China, over a million people thrown into camps, completely extraditional, nothing to do with the Chinese legal system, and you have not only the Western world, but most of the Arab world completely silent to this unbelievable religious atrocity. How could that be possible? Well, the answer is easy, because nobody wants to upset China. And so here we you know, you, ha- you know, we have to, I think, really look at ourselves as a Western civilization and culture. And I don't know what the Jewish word is on this, but like, where's our backbone? Where's our, where's our heart? Where's our soul? You know, where's our guts that we can't, that we let people, you know, turn us against the Jewish people? That we let people turn a blind eye to to a, a tremendous atrocity? Even as you know, look, I mean, uh, the, the hypocrisy here is incredible. Places like this, uh, uh, you know, the Center for Security Policy have been attacked over and over again for being anti-Muslim, right? And yet, here is the greatest atrocity against Muslims of the modern time, right? A million people thrown in prison, and people don't care. There's more discussion about the, the plight of Uyghurs here. You hate Muslims, and you, you care. I mean, because because you don't. Because you cherish this notion of religious liberty, and here and to tie this back to the administration, um, 
you know, once if you if you strip away the tweeting and the yelling and the screaming and everything else, and you actually look at U.S. government policy, one of the stellar focuses of this administration has been the prom the promotion of religious liberty and combating uh, religious persecution. And the lodestars of that campaign have been combating anti-Semitism, bringing attention to the plight of Christians in the Middle East, and bringing attention to the, uh, the what's been perpetrated against um, the Uyghurs in, in Asia. Um, with respect to President Trump, not only has he moved the embassy, and by the way, when the embassy law was passed in 95, Senator John Kyle and Newt Gingrich were the two principal people. We had Zia Way, I'm proud to say, were involved from the very beginning. The Jewish groups were initially against this, saying this will ruin the peace process, that if you don't move it, you'll get the peace. Well, it wasn't moved for uh, over 20 years, and of course there was no peace, so the Jewish leadership was completely wrong. But not only has Trump done the, the things that Fred Flights has mentioned, he stopped funding UNRWA, uh, an organization that uh, promotes vicious hatred, even violence against Jews. He stopped funding the United Nations Human Rights Commission, that uh, almost every one of their resolutions are anti-Israel. Uh, when the Taylor Force Act was passed, and by the way, I have to say, for one year, it was not voted on, it wasn't passed, and APAC has re refused to get on that bill for a year. You'll have to ask them why, but uh, they only got on it uh, when the bill was weakened after a year, where, they were, it, where the Palestinian Authority would not, uh, initially they were, they were going to lose all of the $450, $500 million funding from the U.S. if they didn't change their law that pays Arabs to murder Jews, and the more Arabs, more Jews in Arab murders, the higher their pension and salary for the rest of their life. And then it was passed where they would only lose one-third of the money that America gets. But President Trump said, I don't care. I'm not giving him any more money. He cut out all the money, even though Taylor Force only required one-third. And look at President Trump's appointments. The most incredibly pro-Israel people who understand the truth of the Arab-Islamic war against Israel in the West, John Bolton, uh, Pompeo, Nikki Haley, uh, Mr. O'Brien, who now has just been appointed, Rick Rennell, the ambassador to Germany, the most important uh, European country, Michael Pence, the vice president. You can't get more pro-Israel than Mike Pence. So we have the Jews and those who are pro-Israel, like evangelical Christians, have to appreciate that President Trump has been wildly, not only pro-Israel, but understanding of the dangers Israel faces from the Arab uh, Islamic world. Thank you. If I could touch on a few other characteristics here. Uh, <laughs> one thing that, uh, that President Trump has stressed, uh, and I believe even at the General Assembly just today, is to push for full Arab-Israeli normalization. That is uh, something that is would be huge and needs to happen, hopefully more on the surface than behind the scenes. That is something that would do more than most other symbolic type of acts if it happens in reality. And of course, with the understanding that Iran is in fact the main problem that is focusing Israeli and most of the Arab attention in that direction, it's Iran, this is a great time to do it, which, of course, is something that happened by accident with, uh, started with President Obama making the painfully horrible JCPOA. But something else that President Trump has realized is the uh, importance of the culture war, frankly, when you see him uh, at his best, when he is in the culture war. And this is actually important because 
what we're seeing in the BDS movement, of course, how it works in the in the West, is that this is it's it's a part of progressive lefty ideology now. So he doesn't mind having that battle, and at the same time, the his people that he has from the White House working on the peace process have worked very hard to push back against mythology because in the end a lot of this with the culture war and with the peace process dealing with the Middle East in general is about pushing back on mythology. It's, it, they remember history but it's what they've pretty much invented and boys it transmitted well. So pushing back on the idea that well, Palestine is a state that's existed forever, or <coughs> the return of refugees. Just the idea that I laid out in how BDS works, that this is just about 1967 issues, a uh, occupation. No, it's 1948 issues. It's Israel's existence uh, is important. So I think what President Trump has done, it's not just, you know, receiving a list from someone of... Uh, Oh, well, these are the things that would make a specific group happy, or, you know, these are things on the list to get done. He actually has understood the soup that it's in, you know, and how to basically get to the root of it, which is something that, as we were discussing before, is really going to play out uh, over the coming years. Thank you. You know, Mr. Bra just, I, I, Mr. mentions the refugee issue. It's so important to note, I know Mr. Rossi knows this, Resolution 194 that was passed that said uh, that refugees, uh, so-called Arab refugees, should be allowed to come uh, into Israel. Every Arab country voted against that resolution. Why? Because it said they can only come back to Israel after the Arab countries make peace with Israel. And the Arabs didn't give a damn about the refugees, and they weren't about to make peace with Israel, so every one of them voted against that resolution. Here they are screaming how important refugees are. They, no. they, they tend to like something that was previous and then is no longer on the table. In fact, a very famous prince from a Middle Eastern country said that to Arafat on the way to uh, see President Clinton in the Oval Office for, to get the famous Clinton parameters was whenever we, we always say no, whenever we say no, there's always something less that's available later. Isn't it time that we should say yes? And I, I want to get Rabbi Moskowitz in on this, but I first want to embarrass him a little bit by praising his participation at a panel the center did at CPAC 19 earlier this year. And the title of this is Why Anti-Semitism and Anti-Zionism are Threats to U.S. National Security. Uh, the rabbi spoke at this panel, and he was like a rock star. He held court for 20 minutes afterwards with all the people. And this is a standing-room-only panel. If you want to see his remarks at this, you can see them at our uh, website, securefreedom.org. But anyway, after embarrassing you for this, do you, do you have any thoughts on this question? First of all, I, I had such a high from it. I want to know if we're going to do it again this year at CPAC. <laughs> <laughs> but um, speaking of uh, the president, I know that... Um, Again, this is just going back into the theme of like what I've been speaking about before. The president has done so much for Israel and so much for the Jewish people. Um, I, was, I was once with him in a room and we were talking about it, him and I, and I actually mentioned to the president that he said to me, so you like that I moved the embassy in, in, in Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem? And I was like, Mr. President, that's not the only thing that I like as a Jew that you've done. I mean, I love that what you're doing with protecting religious freedoms. I'm seeing anybody, I highly recommend people watch his speech that he spoke about in the UN. I like what he's doing for on the education front that helps alleviate pressure for Jewish families. I like what he's doing to combat anti-Semitism, and the list goes on and on. Um, mainly, the 
um, we were speaking about the Taylor Force Act, things of how the administration can continue talking about that. The Chovei Tzion, the organization I'm the president of, um, is an affiliate of Young Israel, the president of the National Council of Israel, Farley Weiss, was like more very instrumental in helping um, with the initial movement on that bill. Um, the the thing is, is that Jason Greenblatt was doing so much amazing work on social media, constantly educating the world on what's going on, and the administration has to continue doing that. Jason leaving now is an unfortunate situation, but the administration could continue educating the world. They have this platform that they can educate the world. The the same at the same the same token, I'm a, I'm a, I'm also thinking about like the post Iran, like hopefully we will be able to solve this Iran issue. God willing, we all want that to happen. Normalization with the Arab with the Arab world cannot be contingent on Iran. It has to be contingent on normalization for the sake of normalization. And the U.S. administration can do a lot to help propagate that. That by educating the Arab world and helping them facilitate within their own culture reformation, that they're able to come to terms with the reality on the ground. That not that looking at Israel not only as an ally for for the sake of combating Iran, but also for the sake of um, of just the idea of cultural diversity and the ability to um, interact with each other. Part of that is, in my opinion, recognizing Israel as a sovereign state. And with that, the I don't know none of us really know what the deal of the century is going to be, but obviously the administration should constantly should be trying to do whatever they can to evaluate what has not worked thus far and consider promoting sovereignty, Jewish sovereignty, over the land of Israel with obviously an Arab, some sort of arrangement with the local Arabs uh, with maybe an autonomy, so to speak, um, arrangement. Chol um, we've been um, with several other organizations have been involved. We're the only Orthodox organization that has been promoting on the Hill sovereignty and we've Work, we're starting to work with some of our partners, hopefully, to continue to promote this idea that the Jewish people are a sovereign nation and deserve a sovereign state in the region. And I believe that by educating the U.S. public about that, we can help further the, uh, I guess, the normalization within the region as well. Can I just offer one follow-up thought to that? Because I, it gets back to another thing this administration has done well, is for so many decades... American presidents, when they came in office, were told nothing can get done unless we solve the Jewish-Palestinian problem. Everything else has to be put the on linkage. hold. The, the linkage, right? And, and and you know, magically, if you solve this problem, everything else will blossom, right? And and this president tested that proposition, and I think he's demonstrably proven that that was a silly idea, right? Of course. That that the region is progressing not because we can't solve the Israeli-Palestinian problem. The region is not progressing because the region has lots of problems, right? Um, what the Iranian thing has, what the Iranian situation has done is, it, it has, I think, forced an enormous amount of Arab introspection. And I do think that there is a possibility that, one is we could actually see a real security relationship develop between Israel and the Arab states out of necessity. But having kind of broken that glass, you could see where that could metastasize into all kinds of economic and, and other connections and tethers for a couple of reasons. One is, um, one of the things the Arab states really need to un unleash their economic growth is they need real innovation, right? They need real connectivity, right? 
and, and Israel is the little engine that could, right? Israel is right in their own backyard. They have a state which could be a catalyst for the entire region in terms of economic transformation, economic freedom. Um, and there, there's incentives for them to do that. And part of that is the encroachment of China, right? What's the alternative to the Chinese coming into your region mm -hmm. and taking over? And the answer is you develop your own capacity to kind of be a, a economic block that were, in a sense, immunize yourself against for the Chinese. So in the Middle East's own self-interest, it's kind of time for them to get their act together. And so I agree with you that, that normalization can happen on the back of the Iran deal, but, but there is a window that might have been created here which could start that process. And I, and I think the policies of this administration, both in pressing back against Iran, not tethering all progress in the region to, um, uh, to the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, and engaging in constructive way, engaging with the Egyptians, engaging with these other countries, even you know not giving up on ties with Turkey, right? Willing to be a partner there to help nurture the, the along, not and not to kind of say we're going to come in and protect you guys. You guys have to feed yourselves, but we are a partner in that. I, you know, I'm not a political guy. I'm not completely nonpartisan, but I think you know six or seven more years of that policy that could actually bear fruit. But I think that the, the litmus test for this would be the relationship between Israel and Jordan. Absolutely. And the relationship between Israel and Jordan, although it, there is a lot of security collaboration, unfortunately it's not been able to transfer into a personal relationship. Right. To the point that when the administration did the gas deal, they had to do it through an American intermediary because the Jordanians would have not, would right. not, were not willing to buy directly from the Israelis' gas. And it will be the same case right now over water rights, which are becoming a contentious issue because of the Sea of Galilee having an, an impending ecological disaster. So you could end up with a situation where the Jordanians literally are not interested in buying water from Israel, and that's going to be an issue. So from, from my perspective, I would like to see the Jordanians and the Israelis having a better relationship. And until that doesn't happen, I just don't see how that will be able to evolve anywhere else. I, I take your point. And, and what do the Jordanians really bring to the table? It's an enormous amount of human capital. And what do you need to really leverage that capital? Yeah, 100%. They, they have to integrate in the region. 100%. You know, I'm more hopeful with some of the Gulf states, monarchies. Yeah, right. I'm much more hopeful there. I'm usually pessimistic in general, notwithstanding my legislation <laughs> yeah. comment before. Um, but I think that there is a reason to be hopeful of that going forward. I think the new generation understands quite well that oil is not going to be the way to fuel their economy and they understand that they need to do what Israel's done which is to innovate and when you look around you see Israel as a giant beacon of innovation uh, and, something to and if I could on. just take that one step forward what does this mean for the American left so if Israel integrates into the region right mm -hmm. and um, essentially silliness there stops what does that mean for the American left and and I think we could see a fracturing in the American because between you know, people who are committed to the, these really extremist agendas, can they really exist in a party which, in some sense, wants to be tethered to reality? And I'm not sure they can. That's and why it's still part of that right. the culture war thing. That, yeah. that you, know, you know, I wanted to respond to some things you said, Jim, about the, the Iran nuclear deal. I've done a lot of research on this for the center. And uh, it's, there's a number of things that need to be pointed out concerning uh, this move to left by the Democratic Party and what I think is clear hatred of Israel. Bear in mind that the nuclear deal with Iran was implemented over the objections of the Israeli government with no input from this government, and you've heard Netanyahu repeatedly condemn it. 
But what's worth noting is that there are strong arguments being made by the left right now that we can live with a nuclear Iran. And why can't Iran have nuclear weapons? Because Israel does. I mean, that may sound really ridiculous, but Paul Pilar, who used to be a CIA officer, he's a leftist professor at Georgetown, he wrote an article on why we can live with a nuclear Iran in the national interest a few years ago. I think it's worth noting that as the Democratic Party becomes more radical, as these radical socialists and, and uh, uh, people with anti-Israel sentiment get into the party, there, there's going to be a thinking here that really is against our national interests, against the interests of Israel, people who somehow think that we can live with an Iran armed with nuclear weapons. And I think that was really behind this terrible nuclear deal uh, that, uh, that Obama's administration put forward that never really stopped Iran from pursuing nuclear weapons, had a very short uh, timeline, uh, and Iran was easily able to cheat on because the verification was so weak. So I think when we think about this surge to the left and this surge in anti-Semitism and hatred of Israel in the Democratic Party, it really does have pretty dire implications for American and international security. When you have a country like Iran that publicly proclaims and repeatedly death to America, death to Israel, that's not a country you want to uh, uh, allow them to have nuclear weapons. Exactly. You wouldn't want Nazi Germany to have nuclear weapons. Yes, there's a big difference between Israel and France and others having nuclear weapons in Iran. Israel is not threatening anyone, doesn't proclaim even verbally to threaten anyone, and Iran does. We should have learned from the, the, the 30s and 40s, in the Nazi Germany years, that when a country makes public threats of that nature, you better believe them. And that's why, God forbid, we do not allow Iran to have nuclear weapons, just like we would never have allowed, God forbid, for Nazi Germany to have had nuclear weapons. Another aspect of the public garbage that's associated with that, with that type of thinking is uh, if Israel is assumed to have had a nuclear weapon since the late 1960s, it sparked no nuclear arms race. Right. The idea that Iran could have a nuclear weapon, boy, that scares the pants off of everyone in the region. So clearly, one country uh, is... Because they know they would use it. I mean, and they openly declare, right. So th this, is, this is obviously the main animating problem of the region today, one of them. And I think, you know, fundamentally, I think that's the one issue that many of us fear, right? The problem with a nuclear Iran. I mean, the mullahs aren't crazy. But if Iran has a nuclear weapon, it's not Israel that's a problem. Um, I mean, do people really think that Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Egypt are going to stand by and let Iran have nuclear dominance over them? That's not going to happen. And essentially, this will be not just not not just when we have a highly proliferated region. This will be the death of the non-proliferation. It will right. be, just be the death. And this and is then, the non this is the existential issue that is facing Israel today. At the end of the day, it's all about. What's the Trump administration yeah. going to do next? What are we going to do? What if some a Democrat is elected? How? What if we just get back into the deal and stick our head in the sands, pretend it's going to work? Yeah, and not to say nice things about Fred because I never do that. But both in government and, and at CSP, the, the 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 one I think the this, the 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 the, the, the lodestar of you know your research has always been don't lose sight of what's going what the real policy issue is here is a nuclear-armed Iran is a not just a danger to the United States, it's a global danger, and it cannot be permitted. And if anything, I think JPCO accelerated the threat. It didn't diminish it. That's right. That, look, a, a nuclear Iran is an existential threat to the state of Israel. And Mort is exactly right. Iran is a state sponsor of terror. 
That's why Iran can never be allowed to get nuclear weapons. And frankly, the Obama administration was going to let them get these weapons. There's no question about that. This deal was such a joke. They tried to get a deal because they wanted to have a big celebration, a legacy agreement for Barack Obama. It was a catastrophe. And one of the best things President Trump did was to get us out of this fraudulent agreement. And you can see how all the Democrats are trying to fight back now that this is really a good deal, that we should try to get back in on it. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, Iran is, is saving us from ourselves, from its recent behavior, including firing cruise missiles at, at Saudi oil facilities and its other provocations. It's, I think the Europeans are running out of patience uh, in trying to stay in this agreement. But I think we th have to think of the trend line here, where this came from and where the Democratic Party on the left is moving us in national security. Yeah, not only is it, I'm sorry, no, I was going to say, not only is it a bad deal, but the the the, uh, arm, the arms import waivers, they expire next year, right? So if something isn't done, things could, could get a lot worse. Right. I think it's important. Yeah. I have a fear, I hope I'm wrong, that once, with God's help, we resolve this Iran nuclear danger, where Obama even said himself publicly, after 13 years, Iran can do whatever they want in terms of uh, their nuclear program. Quite shocking. <laughs> I'm worried that once that's resolved, hopefully it will be, Will the, will the Muslim world revert back to their overt hostility to Israel? I say this because traditional Islam remains the fundamental problem. Why you have, uh, in the Middle East, 75 to 95 percent of the Muslims are anti-Semitic, according to Pew's own polls. It's because traditional Islam preaches hatred of Christians, Jews, uh, uh, and until that's resolved, we will have a hotbed of danger in the Middle East. Ayan Hurst Ali, the... the uh, a former Muslim who's a scholar at Stanford University's Hoover Institute has publicly stated repeatedly it is Islam that taught her to hate Jews and Christians and the West. And, I'll, uh, I, and I must uh, say, President Sisi, who I met with two years ago in uh, Cairo, the president of Egypt, said publicly at Al-Azhar University, the mainstream main uh, West Point of the Islam world, he said this, it is inconceivable, said Al-Sisi, that the thinking, the wrong ideas that we Muslims hold most sacred should cause the entire Islamic nation to be a source of anxiety, danger, killing, and destruction, said al-Sisi, for the rest of the world. Impossible. That thinking is antagonizing the whole world. We are in need of a religious revolution. You imams are responsible before Allah. The entire world is waking, is waiting. What a courageous statement by a Muslim leader of a Muslim country at Al-Azhar University that part of the problem is traditional Islam and its preachings. They have to have a revolution just like the Christians had a revolution in the 60s with their uh, hateful uh, language uh, uh, that they used to preach back in those days. I think you have reason to hope on this regard when it comes to this reformation. Again, when it comes to Saudi Arabia or the UAE, I think when it comes to uh, Turkey, Muslim Brotherhood promotion, I think when it comes to Qatar, far more problematic. Um, but that is part of the, that's, I, I'm still hopeful that this can move forward because the current model there, I think they're beginning to become aware is not going to work, both economically, uh, culturally, religiously. So, I mean, we'll see. You know, said two optimistic things. No, no, no. Just, this is just not me. You no, know, just back, back <laughs> in not the administration, where and 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 which Fred was part of, and I give him a lot of credit for help guiding these policies. But, um, you know, America's been really since the the seventies kind of um, bipolar, right? 
we jump in with two feet in the Middle East, then we try to jump out with two feet, right? And, and this is the first administration which I think really has come up with a, a, a realistic policy that says, look, we have to stay engaged with the region, right? Because it's in our interest and we can be a force for good. On the other hand, we can't solve their problems and we shouldn't try to. And I, I just think that that balance is not just right, but the time for that is right. So I'm, I am optimistic. Those optimistic in the Middle East don't normally go together. No, but I, I, I am. I, I do feel like that, that there is a, there's a space here that can be worked if this administration just stays on this course. And this is why I think this issue that you brought up today is so important. Because what we have here is really, you know, like the old movies, they're, the guys are there, they're trying to take the track away, right? So the train will just run off the track. And that's fundamentally what the BDS movement is. They're, they don't want this to work. They don't want people to be at peace and to love each other. They want the hate to, to continue. And the only way they can do that is to derail the train. You know, what I see is that the debate in this country is confused with condemnations of white supremacists and the far right, and I condemn these things without reservation. But this is diverting us from a surge, a real surge in anti-Semitism, including in New York City, which is, which is much worse than you would know, and it is not being reported in the press. And as I said, this is not just a religious liberty issue. This is an effort to delegitimize the American relationship with Israel, to hurt Israel, not just to hurt the Jewish people and, and American Jews. So, I mean, no one wants to say that, but the center under Frank Gaffney has a tradition of saying things that people don't want to hear and talking about politically incorrect things, and this is, this is our politically incorrect uh, topic uh, for today. I think we've kept you out of the discussion for the last few minutes, Rabbi. I thought I'd give you a chance to weigh in. I'm just fascinated listening to all those wonderful comments here. I think that the, just to follow up on their comments, I think that both sides are right, that there is a lot of optimism, but at the same time, we definitely need to see a reformation, and it's gonna, it, ha it has to come hand in hand. If we don't see one, the other side is, the statistically, is just not going to probably work out. And I think that those who are optimistic, I think that they do obviously hope that there will be a reformation, and I think that there are people out there like Imam Tawidi who are promoting this kind of new Islam, and I'm all for it. I mean, if they can pull that off, then that would be it would be amazing for everybody in, in the world. But at the same time, the pessimist in me is a, a skeptic, <laughs> a little bit skeptical, a little bit. Um, I mean, I just, I just, I don't know if I, I shared it with you. I shared with you my grandfather's uh, writings from when he wrote One Minute to Midnight, and it's kind of like regurgitating the same ideas with just a couple words switched from 30 years ago. So it's very hard to see how it has, any, has anything really changed. But at the same time, we have to continue fighting. That's the most important thing. Matthew, final thought before we wrap up? Um, look, I just want, would say thank you again for hosting this. This is incredibly important. The timing is incredibly important. Um, I think one thing that he said that's incredibly important when it comes to our own Jewish uh, uh, faith is tikkun olamism, which is essentially hijacked <laughs> a good portion of our religion and has become a substitute for the religion itself. And this explains uh, a large problem that we ourselves need to address. Um, and I mean, it's I'm surprised myself to have been optimistic on two occasions involving the Middle East because I always say that no one makes money betting on peace in the Middle East. But we shall Thank see. Thank you. 
Well, I hope you all enjoyed watching this important Center for Security Policy on anti-Semitism defending Israel and the Trump administration. Uh, I think we had a, a very good discussion here that I hope you'll find useful. We're going to post this video on our YouTube and Facebook uh, uh, sites as well as on securefreedom.org where you'll find other material that our experts have been writing on this topic. I'd like to thank uh, Morton Klein, Rabbi Moskowitz, James Carafano, and Matthew Brodsky for a vigorous discussion, and uh, we will be posting more of these real soon. Thank you for watching. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Good. Thank you. So we hope that you enjoyed that panel discussion. It was extremely informative for us. I hope it was informative for you. Do you have any takeaways, Husky, about it? Yeah, I think that... Um like I, like I said in the beginning, like it's just such an amazing experience being with these people of such gravitas, and but at the same time, it also felt good because there was like that point where we were talking about Jordan, and um, Mr. Serafano was talking about how he thinks that the point of Iran w- is going to help stabilize the whole region, and I challenged him and I said to him, yeah, like what what what's going to happen post Iran? Um, and then I used Jordan as a litmus test. Yeah, that was that was actually very good. And he actually agreed with you that that maybe his dynamic may not be technically correct. But that we got to take a wait and see. Once we said that, then we saw that more Klein piped up and started talking about the Islamist ideology, which was very Frank Gaffney, by the way. And like it's interesting because which like, Frank Gaffney used to run the center for yeah, used for to used to run the center. center. And his, and Mort's picture is like up there on the wall. It's yes, one of their right, yeah. So, which was clearly from the Frank. Um, Gaffney times because as, as you know Fred is trying a lot more to focus on the national security um, prowess of the center and a lot less on the Islamic right. stuff which makes sense because if you're trying to go mainstream and trying to get into the administration and be respected it's very important but at the same time especially in this administration yeah for sure but at the same time it was cool to see how Fred gotta give him credit for this really was open-minded and like let more speak and gave yeah i mean he let he let everyone speak i mean there were definitely i mean everyone more or less agreed but there were nuances that were a little bit different um where chesky more or less really actually was the only one to speak about how anti-semitism is fueled by the american jewish left which i think was an interesting uh part yeah sorry about that we're actually on our way back uh on the dc train on amtrak and uh, so you may hear once in a while those loudspeakers if you do hear it. But I think that that's like why I think Fred had me on the panel because that I do feel that Chovave, you and, and I, really do. Chovave Tzion. We are probably the only organization that publicly speaks this way. I don't think. Correct. I mean, I mean, we've, we've basically spent now three days in D.C. in the last five days. Um, Pushing the sovereignty movement, which we will speak about probably next week on our podcast, and to see that literally not one Congress member, and I'm talking about ones. Oh, that's the last call for BWI. If anyone that wants, oh, we'll 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 wait this one out. So now now you know where we are. We're at BWI stop here. Um, but the fact that not one Congress member, and we and we spoke with both sides of the aisle, both Republicans and Democrats. None of them have actually heard anything but the Oslo Accord and the peace deal going back to over 25 years. 
And, and, and we see this, by the way, on the Republican side, obviously, and on the Democrat side. Forget about it. It's- yeah, I mean, they, they looked at us like we were from Mars, but when we, you know, and, and we'll talk about it, but when we explained our situation and our positions, you saw, you saw like there were aha moments at some point. And I think, you know, we'll talk about that again. In, in a, we're going we're gonna to give an entire podcast for that, the sovereignty movement and how important it is oh, to change the narrative. Guys, lucky guys. We come back and we give them a double whammy. What is this, like a one and a half to one, four, out, buck 45 podcast? It's an hour and 45. It's going to be total. Yeah. These guys, uh, you guys got a great show. This, yeah, this is a great show. It was, it, it was, it was hopefully very informative. And um, this is what, forward, so. and uh, tell your friends about the show because this is just the beginning. And this is the type of show that we're going to have because, you know, have we, as we have access to different panels and, and different discussions, we're going to bring that onto the podcast. So have a great night, Chesky. And uh, yeah, this is an amazing experience and it's good to be back. And we're looking forward to resume full operational activity next Tuesday. Yes, and, uh, we have hopefully God willing two really interesting guests next week. Yes, we do. Um, I think that we're, we're, we're not going to tell you who it is, but uh, check our uh, Facebook and Instagram. We might get banned from Twitter. Yeah, just put it this way. <laughs> put it this way. We may get banned from social media. Okay. Anyway, let's it. Signing off. Thank Signing you. off. Have a great night, everybody, and have a great week. You've been listening to the Moss Show. Broadcasted from the Socialist Republic of New York. But please, don't tell our governor he asked us to leave. They have no place in the state of New York. Tune in again next week, Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Or go to J-Tribe Radio to listen to the podcast anytime on Play, iTunes, and Stitcher.